Section 15 of The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Nance. The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. Edited by Henry Festing Jones. Section 15 Cash and Credit. The Unseen World. I believe there is an unseen world about which we know nothing as firmly as any one can believe it. I see things coming up from it into the visible world and going down again from the seen world to the unseen. But my unseen world is to be bona fide unseen, and insofar as I say I know anything about it, I stultify myself. It should no more be described than God should be represented in painting or sculpture. It is as the other side of the moon. We know it must be there, but we know also that, in the nature of things, we can never see it. Sometimes some trifle of it may sway into sight and out again, but it is so little that it is not worth counting as having been seen. THE KINGDOM OF HEAVEN The world admits that there is another world, that there is a kingdom, veritable and worth having, which nevertheless is invisible and has nothing to do with any kingdom such as we now see. It agrees that the wisdom of this other kingdom is foolishness here on earth, while the wisdom of the world is foolishness in the kingdom of heaven. In our hearts we know that the kingdom of heaven is the higher of the two, and the better worth living and dying for, and that, if it is to be won, it must be sought steadfastly and in singleness of heart, by those who put all else on one side, and shrinking from no sacrifice are ready to face shame, poverty, and torture here, rather than abandon the hope of the prize of their high calling. Nobody who doubts any of this is worth talking with. The question is, where is this heavenly kingdom, and what way are we to take to find it? Happily, the answer is easy for we are not likely to go wrong if in all simplicity, humility, and good faith we heartily desire to find it and follow the dictates of ordinary common sense. The Philosopher He should have made many mistakes and been saved often by the skin of his teeth, for the skin of one's teeth is the most teaching thing about one. He should have been, or at any rate believed himself, a great fool and a great criminal, he should have cut himself adrift from society and yet not be without society. He should have given up, even Christ himself, for Christ's sake. He should be above fear or love or hate, and yet know them extremely well. He should have lost all, save a small competence, and know what a vantage ground it is to be an outcast. Destruction and death say they have heard the fame of wisdom with their ears, and the philosopher must have been very close up to these if he too would hear it. THE ARTIST AND THE SHOPKEEPER Most artists, whether in religion, music, literature, painting, or what not, are shopkeepers in disguise. They hide their shop as much as they can and keep pretending that it does not exist, but they are essentially shopkeepers and nothing else. Why do I try to sell my books and feel regret at never seeing them pay their expenses if I am not a shopkeeper? Of course I am, only I keep a bad shop, a shop that does not pay. In like manner, the professed shopkeeper has generally a taint of the artist somewhere about him, 
which he tries to conceal as much as the professed artist tries to conceal his shopkeeping. The businessman and the artist are like matter and mind. We can never get either pure and without some alloy of the other. Art and Trade People confound literature and article-dealing because the plant in both cases is similar, but no two things can be more distinct. Neither the question of money nor that of friend or foe can enter into literature proper. Here, right feeling, or good taste, if this expression be preferred, is alone considered. If a bona fide writer thinks a thing wants saying, he will say it as tersely, clearly, and elegantly as he can. The question whether it will do him personally good or harm, or how it will affect this or that friend, never enters his head, or if it does, it is instantly ordered out again. The only personal gratifications allowed him, apart, of course, from such as are conceded to everyone, writer or no, are those of keeping his good name spotless among those whose opinion is alone worth having, and of maintaining the highest traditions of a noble calling. If a man lives in fear and trembling, lest he should fail in these respects, if he finds these considerations alone weigh with him, if he never writes without thinking how he shall best serve good causes and damage bad ones, then he is a genuine man of letters. If in addition to this he succeeds in making his manner attractive, he will become a classic. He knows this. He knows, although the Greeks in their mythology forgot to say so, that conceit was saved to mankind, as well as hope, when Pandora clapped the lid onto her box. With the article dealer, on the other hand, money is and ought to be the first consideration. Literature is an art. Article writing, when a man is paid for it, is a trade, and none the worse for that. But potboilers are the one thing, and genuine pictures are another. People have indeed been paid for some of the most genuine pictures ever painted, and so with music, and so with literature itself. Hard and fast lines ever cut the fingers of those who draw them. But as a general rule, most lasting art has been poorly paid, so far as money goes, till the artist was near the end of his time, and whether money passed or no, we may be sure that it was not thought of. Such work is done as a bird sings, for the love of the thing. It is persevered, in as long as body and soul can be kept together, whether there be pay or no, and perhaps better if there be no pay. Nevertheless, though art disregards money and trade disregards art, the artist may stand not a little trade alloy, and be even toughened by it, and the tradesman may be more than half an artist. Art is in the world, but not of it. It lives in a kingdom of its own, governed by laws that none but artists can understand. This, at least, is the ideal towards which an artist tends, though we all know very well none of us reach it. With the trade it is exactly the reverse. This world is, and ought to be, everything, and the invisible world is as little to the trade as this visible world is to the artist. When I say the artist tends towards such a world, I mean not that he tends consciously and reasoningly but that his instinct to take this direction will be too strong to let him take any other. He is incapable of reasoning on the subject. If he could reason, he would be lost qua artist, for by every test that reason can apply, those who sell themselves for a price are in the right. The artist is guided by a faith that for him transcends all reason. 
granted that this faith has been in great measure founded on reason that it has grown up along with reason that if it lose touch with reason it is no longer faith but madness granted again that reason is in great measure founded on faith that it has grown up along with faith that if it lose touch with faith it is no longer reason but mechanism granted therefore that faith grows with reason as will with power as demand with supply as mind with body each stimulating and augmenting the other until an invisible minute nucleus attains colossal growth nevertheless the difference between the man of the world and the man who lives by faith is that the first is drawn towards the one and the second towards the other of two principles which so far as we can see are coextensive and co-equal in importance money it is curious that money which is the most valuable thing in life exceptus excipiendus should be the most fatal corrupter of music literature painting and all the arts as soon as any art is pursued with a view to money then farewell in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred all hope of genuine good work if a man has money at his back he may touch these things and do something which will live a long while and he may be very happy in doing it if he has no money he may do good work but the chances are he will be killed in doing it and for having done it or he may make himself happy by doing bad work and getting money out of it and there is no great harm in this provided he knows his work is done in this spirit and rates it for its commercial value only still as a rule a man should not touch any of the arts as a creator unless he has a discreta positionina behind him modern simony it is not the dealing in livings but the thinking they can buy the holy ghost for money which vulgar rich people indulge in when they dabble in literature music and painting nevertheless on reflection it must be admitted that the holy ghost is very hard to come by without money for the holy ghost is only another term for the fear of the lord which is wisdom and though wisdom cannot be gotten for gold still less can it be gotten without it gold or the value that is equivalent to gold lies at the root of wisdom and enters so largely into the very essence of the holy ghost that no gold no holy ghost may pass as an axiom this is perhaps why it is not easy to buy wisdom by whatever name it be called i mean because it is almost impossible to sell it it is a very unmarketable commodity as those who have received it truly know to their own great bane and boon my grandfather and myself my grandfather worked very hard all his life and was making money all the time until he became a bishop i have worked very hard all of my life but have never been able to earn money as usefulness is generally counted no one can be more useless this i believe to be largely due to the public school and university teaching through which my grandfather made his money yes but then if he is largely responsible for that which has made me useless has he not also left me the hardly won money which makes my uselessness sufficiently agreeable to myself and would not the poor old gentleman gladly change lots with me if he could i do not know but i should be sorry to change lots with him or with any one else so i need not grumble i said in luck or cunning that the only way at least i think i said so in which a teacher can thoroughly imbue an unwilling learner with his own opinions is for the teacher to eat the pupil up and thus assimilate him if he can for it is possible that the pupil may continue to disagree with the teacher 
and as a matter of fact schoolmasters do live upon their pupils and i as my grandfather's grandson continue to batten upon old pupil art and usefulness tedder the librarian of the athenaeum said to me when i told him i have only seen him twice what poor success my books had met with yes but you have made the great mistake of being useful this for the moment displeased me for i know that i have always tried to make my work useful and should not care about doing it at all unless i believed it to subserve use more or less directly yet when i look at those works which we all hold to be the crowning glories of the world as for example the iliad the odyssey hamlet the messiah rembrandt's portraits or holbein's or giovanni bellini's the connection between them and use is to say the least of it far from obvious music indeed can hardly be tortured into being useful at all unless to drown the cries of the wounded in battle or to enable people to talk more freely at evening parties the uses again of painting in its highest forms are very doubtful i mean in any material sense in its lower forms when it becomes more diagrammic it is materially useful literature may be useful from its lowest forms to nearly its highest but the highest cannot be put in harness to any but spiritual uses and the fact remains that the hallelujah chorus the speech of hamlet to the players bellini's doge have only their uses in a spiritual world whereto the word uses is as alien as bodily flesh is to a choir of angels as it is fatal to the highest art that it should have been done for money so it seems hardly less fatal that it should be done with a view to those uses that tend toward money and yet was not the iliad written mainly with a view to money did not shakespeare make money by his plays handel by his music and the noblest painters by their art true but in all these cases i take it love of fame and that most potent and at the same time unpractical form of it the lust after fame beyond the grave was the mainspring of the action the money being but a concomitant accident money is like the wind that bloweth whithersoever it listeth sometimes it chooses to attach itself to high feats of literature and art and music but more commonly it prefers lower company i can continue this note no further for there is no end to it briefly the world resolves itself into two great classes those who hold that honour after death is better worth having than any honour a man can get and know anything about and those who doubt this to my mind those who hold it and hold it firmly are the only people worth thinking about they will also hold that important as the physical world obviously is the spiritual world of which we know little beyond its bare existence is more important still genius part one genius is akin both to madness and inspiration and as everyone is both more or less inspired and more or less mad everyone has more or less genius when therefore we speak of genius we do not mean an absolute thing which some men have and others have not but a small scale turning over weight of something which we all have but which we cannot either define or apprehend the quantum which we all have being allowed to go without saying this small excess weight has been defined as a supreme capacity for taking trouble but he who thus defined it can hardly claim genius in respect of his own definition his capacity for taking trouble does not seem to have been abnormal 
it might have been more fitly described as a supreme capacity for getting its possessors into trouble of all kinds and keeping them therein so long as the genius remains people who are credited with genius have indeed been sometimes very painstaking but they would often show more signs of genius if they had taken less you have taken too much trouble with your opera said handel to gluck it is not likely that the hailstone chorus or mrs quickly cost their creators much pains indeed we commonly feel the ease with which a difficult feat has been performed to be a more distinctive mark of genius than the fact that the performer took great pains before he could achieve it pains can serve genius or even mar it but they cannot make it we can rarely however say what pains have or have not been taken in any particular case for over and above the spent pains of a man's early efforts the force of which may carry him far beyond all trace of themselves there are still more remote and invisible ancestral pains repeated we not know how often or in what fortunate correlation with pains taken in some other and unseen direction this points to the conclusion that though it is wrong to suppose the essence of genius to lie in a capacity for taking pains it is right to hold that it must have been rooted in pains and that it cannot have grown up without them genius again might perhaps almost as well be defined as a supreme capacity for saving other people from having to take pains if the highest flights of genius did not seem to know nothing about pains one way or the other what trouble can hamlet or the iliad save to any one genius can and does save it sometimes the genius of newton may have saved a good deal of trouble one way or another but it is probably endangered as much new as it has saved old this however is all a matter of chance for genius never seems to care whether it makes the burden or bears it the only certain thing is that there will be a burden for the holy ghost has ever tended toward a breach of the peace and the new jerusalem when it comes will probably be found so far to resemble the old as to stone its prophets freely the world thy world is a jealous world and thou shalt have none other worlds but it genius points to change and change is a hankering after another world so the old world suspects it genius disturbs order it unsettles more and hence it is immoral on a small scale it is intolerable but genius will have no small scales it is even more immoral for a man to be too far in front than to lag too far behind the only absolute morality is absolute stagnation but this is unpractical so a peck of change is permitted to everyone but it must be a peck only whereas genius would have ever so many sacks full there is a myth among some eastern nation that at the birth of genius is an unkind fairy marred all the good gifts of the other fairies by depriving it of the power of knowing where to stop nor does genius care more about money than about trouble it is no respecter of time trouble money or persons the four things round which human affairs turn most persistently it will not go a hair's breadth from its way either to embrace fortune or to avoid her it is like love too young to know the worth of gold it knows indeed both love and hate but not as we know them for it will fly for help to its bitterest foe or attack its dearest friend in the interests of the art it serves yet this genius which so despises the world is the only thing of which the world is permanently enamoured and the more it flouts the world the more the world worships it when it has once well killed it in the flesh 
who can understand this eternal crossing in love and contradiction in terms which warps the woof of actions and things from the atom to the universe the more a man despises time trouble money persons place and everything on which the world insists as most essential to salvation the more pious will the same world hold him to have been what a fund of universal unconscious scepticism must underlie the world's opinions for we are all alike in our worship of genius that has passed through the fire nor can this universal instinctive consent be explained otherwise than as the welling up of a spring whose sources lie deep in the conviction that great as this world is it masks a greater wherein its wisdom is folly and which we know as blind men know where the sun is shining certainly but not distinctly this should in itself be enough to prove that such a world exists but there is still another proof in the fact that so many come among us showing instinctive and ineradicable familiarity with the state of things which has no counterpart here and cannot therefore have been acquired here from such a world we come every one of us but some seem to have more living recollection of it than others perfect recollection of it no man can have for to put on flesh is to have all one's other memories jarred beyond power of conscious recognition and genius must put on flesh for it is only by the hook and crook of taint and flesh that tainted beings like ourselves can apprehend it only in and through flesh can it be made manifest to us at all the flesh and the shop will return no matter with how many pitchforks we expel them for we cannot conceivably expel them thoroughly therefore it is better not to be too hard upon them and yet this same flesh cloaks genius at the very time that it reveals it it seems as though the flesh must have been on and must have gone clean off before genius can be discerned and also that we must stand a long way from it for the world grows more and more myopic as it grows older and this brings another trouble for by the time the flesh has gone off it enough and it is far enough away for us to see it without glasses the chances are we shall have forgotten its very existence and lose the wish to see at the very moment of becoming able to do so hence there appears to be no remedy for the oft-repeated complaint that the world knows nothing of its greatest men how can it be expected to do so and how can its greatest men be expected to know more than a very little of the world at any rate they seldom do and it is just because they cannot and do not that if they ever happen to be found out at all they are recognized as the greatest and the world weeps and wrings its hands that it cannot know more about them lastly if genius cannot be bought with money still less can it sell what it produces the only price that can be paid for genius is suffering and this is the only wages it can receive the only work that has any considerable permanence is written more or less consciously in the blood of the writer or in that of his or her forefathers genius is like money or again like crime everyone has a little if it be only a half penny and he can beg or steal this much if he has not got it but those who have little are rarely very fond of millionaires people generally like and understand best those who are of much about the same social standing and money status as their own and so it is for the most part as between those who have only the average amount of genius and the homers shakespeare's and handles of the race and yet so paradoxical is everything connected with genius that it almost seems as though the nearer people stood to one another in respect either of money or genius the more jealous they become of one another i have read somewhere that thackeray was one day flattening his nose against a grocer's window and saw two bags of sugar 
one marked ten pence half penny and the other eleven pence for sugar has come down since thackeray's time as he left the window he was heard to say how they must hate one another so it is in the animal and vegetable worlds the war of extermination is generally fiercest between the most nearly allied species for these stand most in one another's light so here again the same old paradox and contradiction in terms meets us like a stone wall in the fact that we love best those who are in the main like ourselves but when they get too like we hate them and at the same time we hate most those who are unlike ourselves but if they become unlike enough we may often be very fond of them genius must make those who have it think apart and to think apart is to take one's view of things instead of being like poins a blessed fellow to think as every man thinks a man who thinks for himself knows what others do not but does not know what others know hence the bellicosa for he cannot serve two masters the god of his own inward light and the mammon of common sense at one and at the same time how can a man think apart and not apart but if he is a genius this is the riddle he must solve the uncommon sense of genius and the common sense of the rest of the world are thus as husband and wife to one another they are always quarrelling and common sense who must be taken to be the husband always fancies himself the master nevertheless genius is generally admitted to be the better half he who would know more of genius must turn to what he can find in the poets or to whatever other sources he may discover for i can help him no further part two the destruction of great works of literature and art is as necessary for the continued development of either one or the other as death is for that of organic life we fight against it as long as we can and often stave it off successfully both for ourselves and others but there is nothing so great not homer shakespeare handel rembrandt giovanni bellini de hugues velasquez and the goodly company of other great men for whose lives we would gladly give our own but it has got to go sooner or later and leave no visible traces though the invisible ones endure from everlasting to everlasting it is idle to regret this for ourselves or others our efforts should tend towards enjoying and being enjoyed as highly and as for a long time as we can and then chancing the rest part three inspiration is never genuine if it is known as inspiration at the time true inspiration always steals on a person its importance not being fully recognized for some time so men of genius always escape their own immediate belongings and indeed generally their own age part four dullness is so much stronger than genius because there is so much more of it and it is better organized and more naturally cohesive inter se so the arctic volcano can do no thing against arctic ice part five america will have her geniuses as every other country has in fact she has already had one in walt whitman but i do not think america is a good place in which to be a genius a genius can never expect to have a good time anywhere if he is a genuine article but america is about the last place in which life will be endurable at all for an inspired writer of any kind great things all men can do great things if they know what great things are so hard is this last that even where it exists the knowledge is as much unknown as known to them that have it and is more a leaning upon the lord than a willing of one that willeth and yet all the leaning on the lord in christendom fails if there be not a will of him that willeth to back it up 
god and the man are powerless without one another genius and providence among all the evidences for the existence of an overruling providence that i can discover i see none more convincing than the elaborate and for the most part effectual provision that has been made for the suppression of genius the more i see of the world the more necessary i see it to be that by far the greater part of what is written or done should be of so fleeting a character as to take itself away quickly that is the advantage in the fact that so much of our literature is journalism schools and colleges are not intended to foster genius and to bring it out genius is a nuisance and it's the duty of schools and colleges to abate it by setting genius traps in its way they are as the artificial obstructions in a hurdle race tests of skill and endurance but in themselves useless still so necessary is it that genius and originality should be abated that did not academies exist we should have had to invent them the art of covery this is as important and interesting as discovery surely the glory of finally getting rid of and burying a long and troublesome matter should be as great as that of making an important discovery the trouble is that the cover is like samson who perished in the wreck of what he had destroyed if he gets rid of a thing effectually he gets rid of himself too wanted we want a society for the suppression of erudite research and the decent burial of the past the ghosts of the dead past want quite as much laying as raising ephemeral and permanent success the supposition that the world is ever in league to put a man down is childish hardly less childish is it for an author to lay the blame on reviewers a good sturdy author is a match for a hundred reviewers he i grant knows nothing of either literature or science who does not know that a mot d'ordre given by a few wire pullers can for a time make or mar any man's success people neither know what it is they like nor do they know what they want to find out all they care about is the being supposed to derive their likings from the best west end magazines so they look to the shop with the large plate glass window and take what the shopman gives them but no amount of plate glass can carry off more than a certain amount of false pretenses and there is no mot d'ordre that can keep a man permanently down if he is as intent on winning lasting good name as i have been if i had played for immediate popularity i think i could have won it having played for lasting credit i doubt not that it will in the end be given me a man should not be held to be ill-used for not getting what he has not played for i am not saying that it is better or more honourable to play for lasting than for immediate success i know which i myself find pleasanter but that has nothing to do with it it is a nice question whether the light or the heavy armed soldier of literature and art is the more useful i join the plotters and have aimed at permanent good name rather than brilliancy i have no doubt i did this because instinct told me for i never thought about it that this would be the easier and less thorny path i have more of perseverance than of those perhaps even more valuable gifts facility and readiness of resource i hate being hurried moreover i am too fond of independence to get on with the leaders of literature and science independence is essential for permanent but fatal to immediate success besides luck enters much more into ephemeral than into permanent success as i have always distrusted luck those who play a waiting game have matters more in their own hands time gives them double chances whereas if success does not come at once to the ephemerid he misses it altogether 
i know that the ordinary reviewer who either snarls at my work or misrepresents it or ignores it or again who pats it subcontemptuously on the back is as honourably and usefully employed as i am in the kingdom of literature as i have just been saying in the universal review about science there are many mansions and what is intolerable in one is common form in another it is a case of the division of labour and a man will gravitate toward one class of workers or another according as he is built there is neither higher nor lower about it i should like to put it on record that i understand it and i am not inclined to regret the arrangements that have made me possible my birthright i had to steal my own birthright i stole it and was bitterly punished but i saved my soul alive End of section 15. Recording by Rebecca Nance.